It's a great morning to be together at Genesis Community Church. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors. We're continuing on in the Gospel of John. You heard that, finishing chapter 18 today. Uh, while you turn to John chapter 18, we'll be in the last uh, few verses there, 28 through 40. Uh, I am wondering, I'm sure, at least maybe for the men in the room, you've probably been on a journey and been confident that you're going in the right direction when you suddenly realize that you're not. Now, with our phones, we are less likely to get lost, but even so, if you remember a certain episode of The Office where the GPS tells Michael to turn into, turn right, and there's a right that goes into a lake, and there's a right that goes onto the road, and he's like, it says turn right. And Dwight reminds him, no, Michael, it means right th that right. He goes, no, it says turn right. And he just turns right and goes right into a lake with the correct way right in front of him, right into a lake. Have you ever actually been lost, been somewhere where you don't know where you're going and you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how you got there and you're not sure how to get back? Now, for us, we've done a couple of trips in spring break where we're traveling. Uh, we've gone to Arizona and we've gone to Colorado. Just beautiful to go to places that have, you know, mountains and snow and canyons and rivers. It's a beautiful, beautiful time. But you're in some places in Arizona or some places in West Texas, and you're like, I hope this is the right road because there are no others. And... We could be going for four hours before we see another human. And this happened to us, no joke, this happened to us last spring break where we're going to a, a camp. It was the camp the youth went to a couple years ago, like, like they were going to let us just stay one night there on our way to our Colorado trip. And so I am, I'm driving. Uh, it's not a man thing. I just, Courtney's a better co-pilot tending to everybody's needs, and I just, you like, just point me in the direction I'll drive. So I'm driving. It's late at night because we'd usually left on a Sunday after worship. So like Sunday happens, preach, get in the car, drive nine hours to the Amarillo area. Like that's been the past two years, that's been what we've done. And we're staying at this camp, which is south of Amarillo, I think, and I don't know where I'm going, and the GPS is there, and it's giving me instruction and, you know, you turn, like, I see a sign that says that the, the campsite is, like, yeah, I see it. I go, okay, okay, Cedar Canyon, like, we're, we're near it. And then the GPS tells me to take a right, and I do. And so you just keep going, and you're, on, you're even going in the right direction. Like, it, it's still the right color line on the phone. I'm like, all right, this is it. And then the road turns to dirt. And you're like, well, I mean, it's not going to be wrong. Road turns to dirt. I'm wondering how the suspension is on a van that's 17 plus years old going, this isn't the sturdiest. There, there is just, they're just crops to my left and to my right. I have no idea where this camp is, but like I get, I'm texting my brother-in-law while this is going on. He's there. I'm like, hey man, I'm not sure what's going on, but like we're going to, I don't know where I am. We go and, I, and you do the, the thing you hate where you pass by whatever location it tells you to go. And you don't see anything you're looking for, so you pass right on by it. And I'm like, I don't know, it's, now it's looping me around, it tells me to go down three more miles, make a U-turn, I, I guess it doesn't know this is a dirt road. This is happening in 2022, y'all, like this is like, 
This is, this is, this is real things. Right? I'm going, I'm not sure what's happening. I'm texting my brother-in-law. Well, lo and behold, it was bringing me to the back gate of the camp. Not the entrance, the back gate, like, like with, with, like, you know, cattle guards and stuff. Like, it's locked. You're not going to the back gate of the camp. The road's washed out. Like, you, like I'm feeling like, where am I? Like, it's like, it's like something from an old western. Like, I, I don't have the right thing for this. I don't know. I don't have my stirrups or whatever you need. And, like, uh, my, my, my horse is not ready. And, I, and I'm trying to go. And I got this van. And it took me like an extra 20 minutes to get where we were going because I thought I knew where I was headed and I had no idea. And you can literally, like this camp has a cross, like a big bright cross that just shines all the time. And I'm like, I can, I can see the cross, but I'm not able to get anywhere right now. I'm stuck. Loop it all around, and you had to turn into the first entrance. And then it was like, well, be really careful, because if you take some of these turns too close or too, too sharp at night, you're going into a canyon. Uh, and I was like, that makes me feel really comforted as well. <laughs> so we made it. Being lost is hard. It's hard when you know it. It's worse when you don't. Because you assume all is well. You have no clue that something is going wrong. This happens to us in life, and it happens to us with the Lord. You'll hear us talk at times about those in our lives who are lost or who are far from God. What does it mean to be lost? Or we sing a song, and it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. We sing songs like that, even if you've never sung it. You know the words. You've heard them. But sometimes we don't know what that looks like. What does it look like to be lost and then found, blind, but now seeing? And we want to answer that question today. What does lostness look like? And specifically, what does lostness look like as we get closer and closer to the moment of Christ's crucifixion? These are events that were necessary for the purposes of God to work out, but they also show us just how dark darkness actually is, just how lost lostness actually is. We will see it in John chapter 18 in several ways, but I first want us to go back to the beginning, which was more than a year ago now in our John series. I believe it was in January or December of 2021 when we started this. And you'll read this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And we get to see, even in this passage, how he came to his own. His own did not receive him. The world did not know him. The world did not recognize him. And as we look in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40, we will see this in three ways. We've talked at times throughout the Gospel of John, these uh, Johannine, John-like ironies, where he highlights different aspects of 
in his language that show you darkness and light, confusion, even statements like from Caiaphas. Now, it was Caiaphas who said that one man should die on behalf of the nation, which is actually more true than Caiaphas knew, where Caiaphas thought, oh, we're just, we just let him die so that we can keep going, and didn't realize the actual weight of what Caiaphas was saying. We're going to see this in three different exchanges with Jesus and Pilate and the crowds. And so we'll see multiple exchanges as we go through John chapter 18, 28 through 40. Here's the first. We'll see ritual purity over moral purity. What does lostness look like? Ritual purity over moral purity. The second will be man's kingdom over God's kingdom. And the third will be the son of the father over the son of the father. We'll get to that there in a moment. But let's start with that first one, ritual purity over moral purity. What kind of lostness is this? Ritual purity over moral purity. If you again start in verse 28, now they're there, Caiaphas' house, early in the morning. They did not want to go to the governor's headquarters. So they went from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. This was Pilate. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They said, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They said, It was not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. A lot of things going on here, but the first thing we need to step back and realize is that the relationship between Pilate and the Jewish nation was not good. So Israel was occupied by Rome. That alone did not make a Jewish person happy. And Pilate was the governor there, and he was likely in town, though he had a place he could stay. There was this fortress on the northwest side of the Temple Mount uh, that, that he might have been staying in. But he would generally be maybe at Caesarea, a little farther away. But for a gigantic religious holiday of the Jews, the Jewish folks, he would come in and be sure there wouldn't be an uprising when the messianic expectations rise and there's going to be a celebration and there's going to be feasting and there's going to be reminders of God's faithfulness. That could become a time where there could be some rabble rousing. And so Pilate would be near at the time of a feast, though he wouldn't want to necessarily be there. This is kind of one of the parts of the job you don't want. I've got to go down to Jerusalem. I've got to be sure nothing bad happens. So here I go, heading on down, even though I'd have to leave Caesarea and the comfort of my place just to do that. So he comes on down, and there's this tension between the two because there is conversation. Well, the, the Jewish law does give you a way, a mechanism to put people to death. But at the same time, Rome kind of held the keys on who could and couldn't execute a person. Because you didn't want some kind of occupied group being able to execute folks on their own. Right? That's kind of a power play. And so you wanted Rome to be in charge of those who you could kill. So there's this manipulative way in the coming weeks we'll see the Jewish leadership talking to Pilate in a way that gets him to believe that his form of execution is going to be the best. So, so Rome's kind of in charge of executing people because they're, they're in charge. And so there's this interchange, and it's not a friendly interchange. You can actually hear the exchange. And you can hear Pilate almost say, I don't want anything to do with this. This is your problem. You handle it. 
In the coming weeks, we'll see how they manipulate him to realize that, no, this is really your problem. They manipulate his emotions. They manipulate his authority. But what we see, even in this, they move to pirate, uh, pirate, pirate, er, pilot. (laughs) And you can see in the interaction that they don't really want to have anything to do with one another. But I want you to go up to the beginning It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Do you see that lostness exchange that they're making? We we want to do the right thing in executing the Messiah, so we're not going to go into a Gentile's house. We're going to stay in the courtyard because we want to participate in our feast. That's what they're doing. So Pilate comes out to them rather than put himself in an odd spot where he's like, no, you come in here, right? He goes out to them and they have this conversation about what's going to happen. But even then, they go, well, we can't execute somebody. Do it by your own law. He goes, well, we don't have it by our own law. Yet later they're going to, in the exchange, use their own law to explain why he should kill them. You should kill them because of our law. But you already see from the beginning Pilate kind of stepping back and going, this is not an exchange that I'm that interested in having. But the Jewish leadership, what do they want? What does that lostness look like? That they're so blinded by their own pride and their own sin and their own ways and their own law and their own tradition that they knew it would be proper for them to go to Pilate, but not to actually step into his house. Meanwhile, the most morally pure person to ever walk the face of the earth, Jesus Christ, is there bound and on trial. But that's what being lost, living in darkness does. It assumes that its ways are right, and it misses the Messiah in the middle of it all. Anybody here this morning who has come to faith, maybe come to faith later in life, anybody here this morning who recognizes, remembers that time where they were lost and then found, were blind but now see, recalls that moment where they were doing some of the most asinine things and thinking in some of the most ridiculous ways. And they look back and go, I'm not even sure how I thought about that. I'm not even sure how I came to that conclusion. Why was it better for me to not be ritually impure, while morally I was a train wreck. But I looked good. But I looked good. Now, all of this goes on, and there's this interesting part in this even exchange they're having, if you look at 31 and 32, when Pilate says, you judge him by your own law. Again, that's him going, this is a you problem. They said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's because they had a specific kind of death in mind for Jesus. In fact, their law does let them put people to death, even though there was the weird exchange between Rome. The death that a Jewish nation would do would be stoning. You actually see that in Stephen. And that's what the the Mosaic law would provide, stoning. So they do have a provision to put to death, but they don't have a provision to crucify. Crucifixion is a Roman execution. And so they go, we can't put people to death. And what I think they're saying here is we can't put them to death like you can put them to death, Pilate. 
And so you even hear them there go, well, we, we, we want you to do this. We want you to bring about the execution. But even in that obstinance of the nation, and they're going, no, Pilate, this is your crucifixion. This is your death. We can't do it. You need to do it. It fulfills something that Jesus spoke from John 12, 32. It goes like this. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in the Gospel of John, lifted up would be Jesus on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And so even when they are refusing to judge by their own law while living by their own law, or trying to, and having Pilate do their dirty work, it fulfills the words of Jesus, which says, I will be lifted up. I love this because, again, it puts even the words of Jesus on par with the way John understood Scripture. You see that? We talked about this even recently. Like, if I say something's going to happen and it happens, no one's sitting here thinking I'm the Messiah. But when you make a specific declaration about the Son being lifted up and drawing all people to himself, and then you see the nation refusing to execute in the way that their law provided but asking Pilate to do it in the way the Roman law provided to fulfill the words that Jesus spoke. And this is why we can have confidence that Jesus always knew what was coming. Jesus always saw it, but we see this exchange again of we want to look right but not be right. It's kind of the classic religious person's argument. I want to look right but not be right. Many of us get embarrassed with how we look, and we go to external solutions to fix a heart problem, right? The leadership at that time thought the problem was with Jesus, not with them, and so they needed to fix the issue by putting Jesus to death so that they could be seen as right and vindicated, and so they could eat the Passover. We're not going to come see you, Gentile, can't be in your house, because we want to participate in our we're about to have a feast for a week. There's so much that goes on into the, in the Passover celebration and festivities and the festival that comes right after. And so we want all of this so we can't come in. Meanwhile, they are just morally bankrupt with wicked and confused hearts that aren't aligned with God's will and God's ways. And we look at that and go, man, that's crazy. But we do the same kinds of things at times. Where we go, man, I just, ugh, if I just, I need, to get, I need to get to church. I need to get to church. I need to do that because I need to be seen there. I need people to know that things are going okay. And if I can just be seen in Christian circles, then I will be better off for it. People will maybe have a different appreciation for me. I'll look better. And we're trying to, to wash a corrupt heart with a procedure. And it doesn't work. It's why, we, it's why legalism doesn't really work for us because we have to keep going back to the fount of legalism to try and create a new law to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. It has no one and done solution like the cross has. And so you run to go, well, we want to be, be seen as right while actually not being right. But we do that. I want to be seen as an upstanding, appropriate father, but actually not being a kind, loving one. I want to be seen as engaged in my marriage, but actually not be that engaged. I just want you to think I am. And all of us know how to preen and present and demonstrate ourselves as better than we are. 
so we can curry favor with those that we think are important, the ones that we think matter, or the ones in this instance who think that they can do something for you. That's what lostness is. It's thinking that looking good externally is the same thing as looking good internally, and it's not. And so you create provisions for yourself to make it look like you're in the right when you never really are. And so, just like in the passage of Peter's denials, the camera moves in the exchanges. We're about to move into an exchange with Jesus and Pilate. That starts in verse 33. It goes to the first half of 38, ending with Pilate's question, what is truth? And this is the next exchange that we see here, which is man's kingdom over God's kingdom. Or the world's kingdom, if you want to put it that way. But man's kingdom over God's kingdom. This is another exchange. It's another thing that lostness does and shows us. We see the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate did not, remember, want anything to do with this issue. He felt like it was a religious matter that didn't need him. You can handle it. Take care of it yourselves. So he begins to step in sort of, kind of in a place of ignorance. This starts in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you, look at the question, the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, because I think he was honestly just trying to pull out of Pilate's heart what was going on. Are you asking this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? So you, are you a puppet for them, or are you genuinely, genuinely interested? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So again, you hear him just obstinate about like, this is, this is you. This is you guys. What do you want from me here? Jesus answered, now I want to, I'll say a few things here in a moment. My kingdom, notice he doesn't reject the idea of being a king. He claims a kingdom, but it's of a different quality. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate said, so you are a king? So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And again, we see another exchange. That first picture of lostness, right? Ritual purity over moral purity, looking right over being right. The second one we see is man's kingdom over God's kingdom or the worldly ways over God's ways. It's the next thing that we see in this exchange and Jesus is highlighting that better way, that true way and he uses it in the language of kingdom, the kingdom way and he says this. So he doesn't deny being a king but he has a different kind of kingdom, one that comes in submission to the Father. This does not mean that Jesus' kingdom is not in some way visible. It has subjects, it has people. He actually even says, all who listen to my voice. All who listen to my voice is of the truth. And so it's not this, it's not just this immaterial over material, this visible over invisible, but it's of a entirely different quality. And this is something John is going to talk about a lot when he uses the term for the world. It so often means those ways and those systems that are corrupt and different from the ways of God. 
He uses this in his epistle, 1 John. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world or anything about this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that sounds weird to us, like God doesn't love us if we love the world, but could very well mean, I think it does, that if we're loving the world, we're unable to love the Father. We can't actually love both at the same time. You don't both love God and love the world. You don't mix it. Mixing it is losing. And so what we see are two different things. And the contrast that we actually see in the worldly ways versus Christ's ways is power over submissiveness. Power over submission. So Pilate is using force and power, as are the Jewish leaders, to try and bring about their ways, whereas Jesus is submitting to the will of his Father. And in submitting to the will of his Father, he is going through with death, burial, and what we will see is resurrection. He is submitting to the will of his Father. He is not using force. He is not using power. And he even illustrates that as he talks to Pilate and says, if my kingdom were of the world, then this would just be a fight. My rulers would come. In the same way the world came with torches and lanterns and weapons, they would be coming too. And this would be a battle. But that's not God's way. That's not God's way, and Jesus is highlighting that. He doesn't, again, run from being a king. But he shows a different way of following. And I want to say this to us this morning, and I, especially if you're like in middle school or high school or just out of high school, like if you're right there in that spot of life, I just, I'll tell you, everybody at this church loves you, and everybody at this church wonders how you do it. Because what we mean by that is like, it's just hard. With all the competing voices of the world that try and tell you what is lovely and what is pure and what is good and what is right and what is wrong and what is embarrassing and what is not. The world comes at you so hard and in so many different ways and your friends can say, you believe in Jesus? That is so stupid. You want to do the right thing? All of us are doing the wrong thing. We're going to, it's like we're, we're only get to be in high school once, you hope. And so let's just have fun with it. And we lift up the language of foolishness as if that is godliness and that is what lostness does. Jesus gives the difference. He says, everyone who listens to my voice is one who is a part of truth. And so the battle between the world's ways and God's ways are really a battle between what is true and what is not what brings life, and what brings death. And it's really hard when all day, and I mean this to the youth, I mean this to the adults, all of us, when we put ourselves, you could even use the word, when we submit ourselves to the world's ways of thinking, the world's ways of believing, the world's ways of leading, the world's ways of managing, the world's ways of spending money, we, we submit ourselves to worldly ways of living life and expect there to be some kind of fruitful, beneficial result for the kingdom, and it doesn't work, because Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. 
You can't submit to the ways of the world which glorify and idolize and long for you to be whoever you want to be and whatever you think feels right. Just do and go get it and go be it because you only have one of these lives. And Jesus, in his life, lays it down. Self-preservation and death to self do not work together. They're like oil and water. All who are part of Christ's kingdom, citizens of Christ's kingdom, we live in a world of death. Dying to self that we might rise, that we might enjoy, that we might love life with Christ. But if we try to hold on to both that and the world's ways of loving or the world's ways of living or the world's ways of spending, then we don't actually get anywhere. If anything, we move backwards because we try and combine two kingdoms and it won't work. You are a citizen of one or a citizen of another. And Jesus says that. For this purpose I was born and I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And this is why the Christian should never be arrogant. Yet we are. Some of the most arrogant people around. Because it's almost as if we, we realize the truth, which happens by God, doesn't happen by you, friends. We realize what is true, we read the word, and then we become so sure of it that it becomes a club with which we beat other people. While forgetting the whole time that I once was lost and now am found, I was blind, but now I see, which should produce in every Christian constant and continual humility rather than arrogance and ego. And that's actually what Jesus does. I came to testify what is true. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responds with that question, which is it almost like this question that John wrote, so, and it echoes throughout all time. What is truth? What is truth? Does he say it dismissively? Does he say it arrogantly? Does he say it angrily? Does he say it confusedly? John doesn't really help us know how he says it. But we can say with confidence that that's the same question that the world has always been asking. What is true? Well, truth is what I believe it is. Truth's what I say it is. Truth's what matters the most. Truth's what gets, gets you through the day. Truth is whatever allows things to sustain. And that does not work. Jesus came to show a different way to live. And citizens of that kingdom live in a different way and with a different set of values. We don't aim to get ahead. We don't aim to exert strength. We don't aim to win. We aim to surrender. That's the way of Jesus. Surrendered, submissive, servant-hearted, even toward our enemies. That's the posture. So Pilate asked that question, what is truth? And we see this tension of man's kingdom over God's kingdom. That's a tension that hasn't gone away. What works, what wins, what gets across 
that picture of lostness that we see. And then there's this third, which is really a play, I would say, on, on that second idea of what is truth. And it's actually, again, goes to blindness. And we see this tension in verses 38 and uh, the second half of 38 through 40. That, remember that, that trade-off is the son of the father for the son of the father. And let me explain what that means. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. You're trying to make this about insurrection. You're trying to make this about this guy who's going to come and lead and be powerful. And he's sitting here not powerful. He's in chains. You guys seem to be in control. I don't find any guilt in this man. But you have a custom, and you can actually hear what he's doing here, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he even almost sounds as if, you can hear this in Pilate, sounds as if he is trying to stack the deck in Jesus' favor. I don't see anything wrong with him. I've questioned him in front of you. I've gone into my quarters. We've talked. I'm bringing him out. Everything seems fine. So, so you have a tradition that one person is released at the Passover. Would you like it to be this man? And what do they say? Not this man. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, or your translation might say, uh, like the idea really is that insurrectionist. He, he, he led revolts. He was one who, who was trying to actually lead people away from the nation. And so you see this exchange. It's a play on that exchange that we saw at the beginning. Right there, I'm sorry, right there in the middle between God's ways and man's ways is Pilate comes out and says, do you want this man? They say, not that man. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas is actually means son of the father. Bar Abba. You hear Abba in there, right? You hear the word Abba? Uh, so, so, so son of the father. Don't give us Jesus, the true son of the father. Give us Barabbas. Don't give us Jesus, the man who, who we're saying is an insurrectionist, who really is just, has just tried to lead the nation back into repentance and right living with their God so that they could be made right. Don't give us this man. Give us the son of the father who's the real insurrectionist. Give us that man. Release that man. We want to see Jesus crucified. Perhaps he thought the crowds were going to pick Jesus, but they pick Barabbas. And that again is what lostness does. It takes a counterfeit son of the father and rejects the true one. It rejects the one who gives life for the one who brings revolt. It says, we don't want to have anything to do with this man, Jesus. Give us that guy. And you can almost see it, you know, now, now again, this is just Hans here. Give me a moment. It's like the, the movies where the, like, the drug lord gets out of prison, and you know when he gets out of prison and he meets all his friends at the gate, like, you know he's going right back into whatever it was that he had before. Like, you're just going to go back into that life. 
It's a part of every movie where somebody gets out of prison, it seems. Like, like you know, they might have, a, like, a restoration narrative later, but, like, you always kind of get back and be like, there's always this temptation. Like, oh, I'm going to go back to my old life. No, I'm new. You just have Barabbas gets out, and, like, all, all he has is his network of troublemakers. And so Jesus stands there, and all he has is his father. His disciples aren't there. The Jewish leaders aren't there. They're on the outside screaming. They have Pilate, this Gentile who wants to have really nothing to do with this matter at all. It just feels like it's wasting his time. That's why we got that phrase, he who hand him over has the greater sin. See that phrase? Like Jesus, even in that, talks about how, yes, we say in our creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate, but Jesus himself puts more guilt for handing over in another spot. Her pilot was just one who was used by God in a unique time, in a unique way to bring about the salvation of many. But all throughout this passage in John 18, we see those pictures of lostness, looking right over being right, standing with strength instead of with submission and weakness. Rather than choose Jesus, we choose some earthly, counterfeit version of him. And what, what response do we have as a church when we see that? It seems like we are up against a significant problem, which is convincing blind people that they're blind, but they don't know it. Convincing people in darkness that they're not in darkness, that they need to come into the light. Showing people that their desires for even ritual looking right actually doesn't address being right. What do we do with that? How do we, how do we as, a, as a church, have any response to just what seems to be the overwhelming darkness that misunderstands, abuses, and doesn't pursue God's truth. Well, one thing that we have at our disposal that we should always use is something we've highlighted in our series last month, something we're doing all this month, is the one thing that we can do, without a doubt, is go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and beg of Him to change people's hearts. Beg of him to change people's hearts. When we see people not understanding what is true, living for this world and not for the Lord, walking in darkness because they think their view of life is right and confident and they're so sure of it and they're screaming with all their might whatever current version of give us Barabbas actually is out there. I want this way of living and not that way of living. I want this counterfeit savior over the real savior, whatever way that is. What can we do? Convincing doesn't work. Now, we can persuade, we can be persuasive, we can explain and reason and share and teach and, and beg, but we can't move darkness to light and death to life. We must bring it before God and ask him to do what only he can do. 
those of us who have been in John for a while, when we're, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he speaks about the Holy Spirit, and he says, the wind blows wherever it may. So it is those who are born of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask God. We ask God to move. In fact, I want you to take 30 seconds right now and just ask God to move in somebody's life. Amen. Another thing, though, that we need to latch on to as believers is this. The need to pray regularly for those in our life that God might change them because it takes him. But other, the other thing is that we would love the words of Jesus. That we would listen to the words of Jesus. That we would regularly, if we're groggy, if we're tired, whatever, that we would, we would open our Bibles or our phones or grab the Dwell app and listen to it like I try to do every morning, you know, Monday through Saturday. And just, just hear God's word, engage with God's word, speak of God's word, because what does Jesus say? All who are a part of my kingdom listen to my words. And so we have to continually go to God that we might have the right alignment around what is good and what is true and what is right, what is noble, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. That we might have that right, that we need to be aligned. It requires for us daily attention. Remember in John 15 where he speaks about abiding. Abide in me, and my word abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. So for the believer here, I would ask you this. Where do you find your most valuable messages? Where are you finding sources of true truth or counterfeit truth? Where are you living in such a way that perhaps you realize the things that you love or long for or think about aren't really from the Lord and they don't align with the values and convictions that a believer would have, but it's because you have given the majority of your day over to considering things other than the Lord. Now, this sounds really hard because if you're thinking, I, I work 8, 10, 15 hours a day. Am I just supposed to think about Jesus every moment like while I'm making widgets or whatever else I'm doing? Like, like how do I do that when my job requires me to focus on every element that's actually right before me? How do I do that? It comes, I know, hard to think about, well, how do I do it? Just, am I always just singing worship songs like crucified? Right, like, like we're just trying, like what, do we, what do you do? You go, oh yeah, can, I, can you change my cube? I don't want to be by Hans anymore. He's just always singing songs like it's weird. How do, we, how do we actually do that? Well, there are so many ways. So many ways. Being here in corporate worship. Regularly reading and engaging with God's word. Both personally 
in community groups, maybe in discipleship groups, finding ways to hear God's word, to discuss it, to, to struggle through it and go, well, I read this, I don't even really know what to do with it. I, you find my phone, it's full of screenshots when we're doing the Bible reading. Like anytime it's like red, it's like just me screenshotting whatever we're listening to because I want to go back, I kind of thumb through it and go back and go, huh, what about that or what about this? And, and just finding myself just having to remember these things, right? That's why we want to memorize at times. That's why we have our kids even upstairs and down below memorizing Bible songs because they'll stick. They stick better than sermons. I hate to say it. They, but like they stick better than sermons. My kids make fun of me because like, Dad, I've got to watch you sing the song again. Um, but delighting in God's Word. giving attention to God's word, running to God when you need a solution to something rather than running to the world. There's all kinds of ways we can build in engaging with the Lord first that don't require us to have a hymnal open all the time, but be thinking about it and working through it and discussing it and praying over it. And so we do that because we should always know what it is like to have been lost and then found, blinded and then free, and, and that we might best and better live as citizens of God's kingdom in the way that Jesus has shown us to live and the only one who ever lived it perfectly, beautifully, even when questioned, even when challenged, even when Fill it in. Any time, he could have just said, no, I'm not really that guy. It's not, yeah, I'm not that guy. Just let me off. And he didn't do it. And we have language from our scriptures as to why. For the joy set before him. God showed his love to us in this. While we were still sinners. Christ died. So we want to walk in his ways because his kingdom is better. His ways are better. They produce more fruit and more life than we could ever find in any counterfeit, lost, darkened version of life that this world produces.